All right, well, welcome to Church Online. Thank you for joining us. And if it's cool with everybody, I'm going to get straight into our message because I have far more to say than I have time for today. And uh, we're, we're in this series talking about the beginning and the implications it has on us as human beings. And so last week, Doug talked about the Imago Dei, meaning that we as human beings are created in the image of God. I'm going to read it to you, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. How many times in one sentence can you say the word created? In God's image, he created us, human beings. So we are set apart from the rest of creation. And there's three major implications from the fact that we are created in his image. The Imago Dei has three implications. It has implications on our relationship with our creator, implications on our relationship with creation itself, the creative order. So we are invited to partner with God to bring beauty and glory out of what he has created as his co-creators. And it has implications on our relationship with one another, fellow image bearers. And Doug introduced this, this term, this phrase that, that we're going to be saying all the time in this church. It's here to stay. It's that we are advocates for the Imago Day. It's who we are. And so we started preparing for this series and we're talking about creation and the Imago Day and the implications of that and in the midst of this conversation for our staff, the story of Ahmad Arbery surfaced. And so we started wrestling with that like everybody does. And I, I felt the things that, that people feel. And if you don't know, read about the story. But a few months after Ahmad Arbery was senselessly murdered, we all found out about it. And people demanded justice. And, and the story is continuing now. And I felt the anger. I felt the frustration that a, that a man that was jogging was murdered simply because of the color of his skin. And I felt the, the things that I think we all feel. And then I think I felt the thing that might be the worst of all. And that's, gosh, this is terrible. Somebody's got to do something about that. And then the ability to just return to my life unaffected and continue on. And one of the best things I've done in my life was to marry an advocate. So one day I was out in my backyard doing a quarantine workout. And my wife was outside as well, sitting in a chair with her phone, and she was getting some sun. And uh, towards the end of my workout, I realized that she was crying. And so we started talking, and she had been watching a video from a pastor named Jimmy Rollins, who was talking with his father and his son about race, about Ahmaud Arbery, about their experiences as three generations of African-American men in this country. And the experiences and the stories they told had broken my wife down and soon broke me down as I listened to it. And in the moment, my, my wife looked at me and with tears in her eyes, she said, we have got to do something about this. We're called to be advocates. And a side note, if you're single in this church or single watching this, marry somebody who's going to say things like that to you. Who's going to call you to be the advocate for the Imago Day that you were created to be. So my wife said that, and it struck something in me. And so I started thinking, what can I do? And we talked as a team, and, and we decided, hey, we're talking about the image of God. 
the implications of that mean that there's a way that we're supposed to treat each other as human beings. And we as the church, we are advocates for the Imago Dei, then, then we've got to be in this conversation. And I've heard people say this is just a social issue or just a political issue of race in this country. But this started as a spiritual issue. This is a spiritual issue. This is a tragedy pointing us to a reality of a spiritual stronghold in this country. And as ministers of reconciliation, we have something to say about that. And so we're, our, the topic today, the question we're asking, how can we make harmony? It, it starts with understanding that this is our ministry of reconciliation. This is a church conversation. This is a spiritual issue. And we love 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. It's a passage that is quoted all the time. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is our ministry. And this isn't just saying it's about reconciling people to God. It's also saying to each other. This is a vertical and horizontal reconciliation that we are called to as believers. If it wasn't, then Jesus wouldn't have told us that loving our neighbor was as important as loving God. So this is our ministry. So I started wrestling with this topic and the idea of preaching about it. And uh, I, I did what you do. You start researching, you start reading. And there's people who would say, we don't have a race issue in this country. And there's plenty of statistics to just smash that argument. That, that African-American mothers are four times more likely to die during childbirth in this country. That an African-American graduate is two times more likely to be unemployed. That an African-American man is 30% more likely to be incarcerated for the same crime as committed by his white counterpart. So I started reading statistics and, and they point to the fact that we, we don't have actual equality in this country. People are not treated the same with the same opportunity in this country. But the other thing that comes with statistics are arguments. Are people starting to throw things at each other in numbers? And here's, what's gets, here's what gets lost in numbers is human beings. And so thank God something struck in me and said, I'm not just gonna look at numbers, I need to talk to people. Rather than seeking statistics, I need to seek experiences. And so in the past two weeks, I have had the best education in my life on this issue by getting on the phone and talking to about a dozen of my friends. Some of them are black, some of them come from mixed race backgrounds, some of them are white advocates. We, I talked to so many different people asking experiences, asking questions and listening. And what statistics can't speak to are the things that my friends told me. My friends Derek and George telling me, yeah, I just get followed around stores sometimes. My friend George was literally questioned when he went to purchase the engagement ring for his wife, if he truly understood how much it cost. Nobody asked me that. And so there's these undertones, there's these, these subtleties that are in our, our culture. My friend Alex, so he comes from uh, having one black parent and one white parent. He grew up in Southern California and was called the N-word so many times he switched schools. He was made to not feel welcome by his white family he had notes on his door for his family saying, you're not welcome here. 
because his mom was black. My friend Alexandria, one black parent, one parent of another ethnicity and had similar experiences of not feeling like she belonged anywhere. My friend Rod told me that he has noticed people just lock their doors when he walks by their cars and he's the last person that would ever hurt somebody. And these experiences over and over, they started to make me just like so heartbroken and angry. My friend Daisy had to experience a letter being written from relatives of her boyfriend telling him that they did not support him as a white man dating a black woman. In 2020, that happened. My friend Pamela Grace was walking to her car the other night and a friend of a neighbor screamed the N-word and she ran and got in her car and sat there trembling in fear until she knew that person had left. So you can't tell me that we don't have a race issue in this country, not just because of what statistics say, but because of what people are experiencing. And the, the Ahmaud Arbery story, it is a tragedy pointing us to a spiritual issue, a spiritual stronghold. And as a pastor, as an advocate for the Imago Day, I have a role to say something about that. But I started wrestling with how do I do that and what can I say and what should I say? Because I'm a white person. And I know I'm speaking very bluntly about race right now and I feel like we kind of have to, to have a real conversation. And so I started to think, well, who am I to say anything? In this country, white people are in the majority. There are majority white people in this country. So I don't know what it feels like to be a minority. And through hearing experiences, I started to feel like I'm getting just a little bit closer and a little bit closer to an understanding, a little more empathy, a little more empathy. But I think there's some things that for us in the majority, for those that are white people in this country that keep us silent about this issue, that cause people to say, that's their issue. But I'm here to say today, that's not their issue. This is our issue. This is all people's issue. And this is the church's issue. And one of the things I think that, that, that we hear and makes us feel like, well, well, am I just the bad guy because I'm a white person is the term white privilege. And so I want to redeem what that means and why that was intended in the first place because it's been miscommunicated and misrepresented. And I'm trying to just bring down walls right now because I know this is a hot topic because I think that white people hear white privilege and think, well, you're just saying that I've had it easy and I was born in a castle and I've never dealt with anything hard in my life and I don't know what I'm talking about and I shouldn't say anything. But the here's the best definition I've heard of what white privilege actually means. White privilege doesn't mean your life hasn't been hard. It means your skin tone isn't one of the things making it harder. And that's gonna be true in any country if you're in the majority people group. The, the tone of your skin will not be one of the things that makes your life harder. And so I haven't experienced that, but that, that pushes me, I think, to start feeling like what I would say is white guilt. Guilt about being a white person. And that comes, I think, when we think back through history, we see things on the news that, that, that we realize that people who look like me have done certain things and we start to feel guilty. I've just honestly at times in my life felt like it's just not a good look to be a white person today. And so I think that that, that white guilt sets in and it silences us or it pushes us away. And, and a lot of that is not due to any of us because we didn't make those decisions and we didn't do those things and we don't want other people to judge us based off what somebody else did. But I think there's also something deeper down in every human being. I'm speaking now to every human being that, that kind of gets twisted when we see a reality of prejudice played out to an extreme. And it's the fact that we as human beings all carry prejudice in our lives. And before you get mad at me and say, not me, not me, you don't understand, you don't know, this is what prejudice is. It's simply a preconceived opinion that is not based on reason or actual experience. Stereotyping, 
putting someone in a box, making a judgment before you actually know the person. We do this in kindergarten. You go to class, you see the kid with glasses, or you used to. I don't know if this is true now. You'd say, nerd. That kid might grow up to be Justin Bieber or LeBron James, but you have this preconceived idea, so you put that onto somebody else. We all do this. I don't want to give away too much of the next part of this series, but this beautiful creation goes bad. And human beings make mistakes. And from that moment on, prejudice enters into the human being. We start making judgments and having preconceived ideas and listening to what other people say and putting what that person did on somebody else. So we all carry prejudice. And I think when we see that played out, we feel this guilt in us like, oh gosh. Oh, oh gosh, there, there better not be any part of me that has that. But if we're real, we, we just might. And when prejudice goes unchecked and grows up, it becomes racism. And I don't think that people listening to this message in this church, I, I have a feeling that there's nobody that holds fast to racist ideologies by any means. But I know that we all carry prejudice. And instead of knowing what to do with that, I think we just kind of let it silence us. Instead of bringing it before God, what we do is hold it with guilt and guilt does not heal. Repentance heals. Laying it down heals. And if you're hearing that and you're like, I'm starting to realize maybe I do, or I've known that for a long time and I got to do something, but I feel bad. I don't like you pointing this out about my broken human condition. Let's, let's talk about Peter. Jesus' best friend, leader of the church, one of the biggest struggles and battles of his life was prejudice. Dare I say racism. So in Acts, there's this beautiful story where God reveals to Peter, hey, this is for the Gentiles too. Gives him this vision. He goes to Cornelius' house and he baptizes the family and he's starting to realize this barrier starts to come down. And we think, okay, great, Peter got it, good for him. But actually not that long after that, Peter reverts back to his old way. Paul has to call him out. We're talking about Peter and Paul, like the giants of the New Testament, having a showdown, having to have a hard conversation about race. Here's how Paul recounts it in Galatians 2. When Cephas, which is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Paul calls him out and says, hey, now that your old posse's back, you're just walking and sitting with them in the lunchroom and you're not talking to anybody else. You're not crossing the border, the boundary that you were supposed to, you just stopped. And that's not right because that's not what Jesus showed you. And Peter has to repent of that and lay that down. He has to keep learning this lesson. We're talking about one of the, the early church leaders who had to battle through this and God was patient and understood that humans are broken. So we've got, to, this is the pattern that Jesus, he walks up to broken people and says, repent, believe, and then that moves them to do something. And what I think we need to do as human beings is start repenting the prejudice in us, the fact that we just have it, to call it for what it is and lay it down and say, God, help me now to believe this Imago Dei vision for every human being, because that will propel me to do something about issues like systematic racism in my country. And so Peter's first, I'll go next. I, I didn't grow up in a racist house. My parents educated us with, with zero racist ideology, but have I held prejudices and judged people based off things like the color of their skin, maybe just in my head? Sure. Have I told racist jokes and laughed at racist jokes in my life? Yes. Have I said things that I would not have said had a person of color been in the room with me in my life? Yes. In youth and in ignorance, I have done those things. Have I been silent and not spoken up when somebody else said something around me that I should have stopped? Yeah, I've been silent. 
And I felt guilty about that for a lot of my life. And so something twists in me and says, who are you to say anything? And I think that's the enemy trying to silence us. And God is saying, lay that before me and I'll start to give you an Imago Day vision for people. And we're gonna do something with this. I was talking to my friend, Pamela Grace, and I was talking about white guilt and she called me out. She said, step out of white guilt and walk into feeling empowered to elevate your brothers and sisters. I was talking to Alexandria from our church. She said, when I said, hey, should I say something? Do you think I should say something? She said, silence doesn't change anything. And what we don't change, we tolerate. And we as a church are not gonna tolerate this. I'm not gonna tolerate racism. I'm not gonna tolerate the stories that we keep hearing over and over. So we're saying something today. And it was my black friends who empowered me to get up here today to say something. And I'm so thankful for every single one of you that got on the phone with me and shared your heart and your experiences because what it did is just give me more compassion and more empathy. There's this quote that has kind of cursed me in a good way in my life. It says, compassion is the sometimes fatal capacity for feeling what it's like to live inside somebody else's skin. It is the knowledge that there can never be any real peace or joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you too. Started to feel that more and more for my friends, more compassion, more empathy. And, and, and my anger started to turn from being angry at people to this spiritual issue, to the enemy who is killing and stealing and destroying through people. My friend Derek, in, in maturity and humility, I said, hey man, is there anything I shouldn't say? Here's what he said back to me. He said, don't make anybody feel shame for racism in their past or in their thoughts. We've got to move forward together. An African-American man, the humility to say that when he has every right to be angry, a redirection of our anger towards an issue and a spiritual stronghold that we need to take down together. A spiritual stronghold that the enemy may have started, but Christ will finish in victory through his church. My wife read me this quote and it's helped me to, to direct my anger the right way. That it says that we Christians, we need and often lack a holy anger about the things that are wrong in the world. To rage against the ravaging of God's earth and the destruction of God's world. To rage when little children must die of hunger when the tables of the rich are sagging with food. To rage at the senseless killing of so many. To rage against complacency. To restlessly seek that recklessness that will challenge and seek to change human history until it conforms to the norms of the kingdom of God. That's who we are as the church. Called to seek to change human history until it conforms to the norms of the kingdom of God. Since when has impossible stopped Jesus? So, like I said, I don't think anybody in here, anybody listening would, would just disagree with the statement that racism is evil. And it's really nice on a stage where we always have to make balancing statements to not have to make one. Because there's no balancing statement for that. Racism is evil, racism is wrong, and it is from the pit of hell. And I'm guessing that I don't have to tell most of you that we are all created equal. I think you probably already believe that. But I'm gonna make that case today biblically, through science, and give us some action steps because what I'm doing up here today is empowering advocates for the Imago Day, And I want you to be able to enter into this conversation. So let's start with the Bible. So we know God creates human beings, the Imago Day creates us in his image. All of us, all human beings are created in his image, right? And then sin enters and people start stepping on top of each other and dividing and, and saying, we're these people and you're those people and us and them. And that happens quickly. 
So Genesis 12, God taps this guy Abraham on the shoulder and says, hey, through your family, I'm going to bless all peoples. Hear me, not I'm going to reveal myself to your family, but through your family to all peoples. And so remember that word peoples, that means like families, tribes in that time that are starting to separate from each other. And this story goes that these families grow up into nations. And you can read the whole history of Abraham's family. It's the Old Testament. And, and from that family, centuries, centuries later, Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus walks into an environment that is racist. He walks into a time and space where there is racial tension all around him. His, his people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, they have borders around. There are borders around them. There are people groups that literally hate each other. Jesus shows up. Remember, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish Messiah. He shows up on the scene and, and he starts talking to this issue. He's firm on this issue. And you probably know about the Samaritans. You've probably heard stories about the Samaritans. So the Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. Two people groups, there's, there's evidence historically of like hate crimes that they committed to each other. And so John 4, when Jesus goes to the woman at the well, we read that story and he shows up and he had to go through Samaria. He had to go to this place that his disciples did not want to go. And he starts this conversation with this woman. And we kind of read that often, like this is a, a holy rabbi and he's talking to this scandalous woman and how scandalous of a story. And that's correct and true. But what can be lost on us are the racial implications of this story. So Jewish people viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds. The, the Samaritans came from Jewish people who had intermarried with other people groups. So the Jewish people saw them as impure, unclean, to the point that they would literally go to the temple and pray, God, please do not save the Samaritans. You want to talk about hatred for another people group. So Jesus knows that. And he walks straight through Samaria and goes up to this woman and strikes up a conversation with her. And she's one of the first people he reveals, I'm the Messiah, to this woman. His disciples are like, why are we here? Why are you talking to her? probably offended by the whole thing as Jesus spits in the face of racism. And then he doubles down on it in the story of the Good Samaritan, which we read now, we don't have this context, so we read it as like the good guy, the merciful guy. Jesus gets questioned by a teacher of the law. This guy, he's an expert in the law. So he would be very firm in this idea that his people or the chosen people probably would say, God's gonna bless hopefully just us and not anybody else around us. Surely not those Samaritans. So he's questioning Jesus. Hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. And he goes, okay, famous question, who is my neighbor? And what he's hoping Jesus will say is, oh, it's, it's those guys over there that look like you and act like you and think like you that are really easy for you to love and very comfortable to be around for you. Of course, Jesus does the opposite of that. He tells a story and he makes the Samaritan the hero. And this would have, like, like we were like, this is controversial. No, this would have enraged these guys. Because what happens is a man is beaten and left on the side of the road for dead. A priest shows up, a Levite show up, and they, they both just walk on by, right? When their names were introduced, the guys listening would have been like, those are the rock stars. What are they going to do? Pay attention to what they're going to do. And they just walk on by. And then Jesus says, a Samaritan is coming. And when they heard that word Samaritan, they probably thought, oh, he's probably going to just finish the job and step on his throat because those Samaritans, they're not even human. And the Samaritan cares for the man puts him up in an inn on his own dime. He's the hero 
of the story. And this would have enraged the audience as Jesus once again is trying to open their minds up to the fact that the blessing has come for all people. But this Jewish Gentile divide, it was so hard to the point that Jesus is so extreme in this. It's like he's swinging the pendulum so far the other way than what they're used to. The stories that were circulating in this time were always making the rabbis and the priests and the experts in the law, the heroes of those same similar types of stories. And Jesus is like, no, the Samaritan's the hero of the story. He's the merciful one. He's, he's, what my friend Chad says is that he's throwing theological cold water on their faces to wake them up to their narrow-minded prejudice. Listen to this quote about this story. The Good Samaritan story, especially when placed within the overall theology of Luke Acts, likewise, likewise destabilizes our inherited black-white worldview and challenges us to move beyond the us-them mentality of our culture to an us-us-in-Christ unity that demolishes the ethnic boundaries of our society. If we shirk the risks and dangers of breaking the ethnic barrier, and if we place our own well-being at the top of our priority list, hiding behind the self-righteous justif justification of minding my own business, then we become like the priest and the Levite and not like the good Samaritan. Jesus is here to erase boundaries and borders and separation of human beings. And he goes to the cross and he pays for our racism and our prejudice. He pays for the brokenness of humanity. And he walks out of a tomb making unity of his people possible. And he gives his disciples the great commission. We love the Great Commission in church. Put it on a neon t-shirt, put it on a poster in the church. He says, therefore go into all nations and make disciples. Baptize everybody in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone's like, yeah. The disciples are like, sure, man. He's like, just so you know, I said all nations. I'm talking about Samaria. I'm talking about those people out there that you don't like. Because the word, that word nations, we think of that as countries like the U.S. or Canada. No, that, that means people groups tribes, families, all people groups. And there are thousands of them on earth right now. Go to all of them. And his disciples are like, oh yeah, for sure. He's like, all people. And they're like, see you later. And they go to Jerusalem and they stick in their comfort zone because that's what human beings do. We seek safe spaces and they have to be awoken like the story of Peter. The Holy Spirit has to, has to move in them to say, no, 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 the Gentile too. And thank God, Jesus was so clear on this because unless you descend straight from one of the 12 tribes of Israel, you're a Gentile. We were all the them. We were the them. And Jesus said, no, you go to them. Bring the gospel, the good news to them, all of them. That's why I feel like all through, if you read the New Testament and Paul's letters, he's constantly like, constantly coming back to this Jewish-Gentile discussion. Because it was so hard for people to wrap their minds around. Romans 10, Paul writes, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you want a great passage to read and study and pray through Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. It's this brilliant passage. And Paul says things like his purpose, Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. 
What Jesus is doing in swinging this pendulum and Paul echoing is not saying, hey, you guys that thought you were the in crowd, you're actually worth less as human beings. He's saying you're just not worth more, which would be the same thing I would say to the majority in this country to white people. It's not that you're worth less, you're just not worth more than anybody else. We are all one human family created equally. And Paul's screaming it at the top of his lungs. We've got to walk across these boundaries. And now I know saying we're all one big human family, that might sound like a Christian cliche or a Michael Jackson song, but it certainly doesn't feel that way most often to us. Like we look around like, are we really one human family? Are we, do we treat each other that way? Do we look that way? I don't think so. If it doesn't feel to you like we are one human family, not only does scripture say that we are, but science does too. So we're moving from a biblical perspective to science now, okay? In the past 20 years, there have been so many advances in genetics and genomics that have made so many things possible. And you actually know about that because everybody loves these ancestry kits that we can send in and find out where we come from. What's our backstory? And it's been really cool. In 2003, the Human Genome Project was completed and that allowed for these kinds of studies. And so we're celebrating, it's awesome. I think it's been a great thing to celebrate the different backgrounds that we have. But what's been interesting to the scientists that are overseeing all of this is how similar we actually are. So I read these two great articles breaking this down. One comes from Harvard, one comes from this guy who's a molecular biologist, and he's the chair of life sciences at the New York Institute of Technology, and they've been studying this. So let me read a couple things from these articles. This is from the Harvard article. Though these physical differences may appear on a superficial level to be very dramatic, they are determined by only a minute portion of the genome. We as a species have been estimated to share 99.9% .9 of our DNA with each other. The few differences that do exist reflect differences in, env in environments and external factors, not core biology. Despite notions to the contrary, this is now from this other, this guy, Michael Hajigairu, his, his article, despite notions to the contrary, there is only one human race. Our single race is independent of geographic origin, ethnicity, culture, color of skin, or shape of eyes. We all share a single phenotype the same or similar observable anatomical features and behavior. Science highlights these similarities in our embryonic development, our physiology, biochemistry, and more recently, genomics, our genetic makeup. As a molecular biologist, this last one is indeed the most important to me. Data show that the DNA of any two human beings is 99.9% .9 identical, and we all share the same set of genes. Scientifically validating the existence of a single biological human race and one origin for all human beings. In short, we are all brothers and sisters. This is coming from a scientist. We all evolved from the same ancestors and are indeed all virtually genetically identical to each other, making us a single race. Here's an interesting side note about these studies. One of the things that points them to the fact that we are all so genetically similar is that we have this common susceptibility to diseases all around the world and they point to global pandemics as proof of how similar genetically we as human beings are. And I just thought that was so interesting in a time when a global pandemic is reminding us that we are one human family, science is going, yeah, we, that's what we've been saying. Here we go, back to the, the Harvard article. In the biological and social sciences, the consensus is clear. Race is a social construct, not a biological attribute. Today, scientists prefer to use the term ancestry to describe human diversity. 
Ancestry reflects the fact that human variations do have a connection to the geographical origins of our ancestors. With enough information about a person's DNA, scientists can make a reasonable guess about their ancestry. However, unlike the term race, it focuses on understanding how a person's history unfolded, not how they fit into one category and not another. Ultimately, there is so much ambiguity between the races and so much variation within them that two people of European descent may be more genetically similar to an Asian person than they are to each other. Despite the scientific consensus that humanity is more alike than unlike, the long history of racism is a somber reminder that throughout human history, a mere 0.1% of variation has been sufficient justification for committing all manner of discriminations and atrocities. 0.1% has divided us for human history. And so if you're hearing that and you're like, okay, wait, if we're 99.9% .9 genetically the same, how do we all look different? It pointed to external environmental type factors, but also if you remember back to high school biology class, there's these little guys and they're called alleles. And scientists describe them that they are the flavor to the genes. They give the ability to have a different eye color or hair color to a very genetically similar person and this person. The flavor to our genes, which sounds to me like something a creative God would weave into his creation that he would weave flavor into each of us individually and make us uniquely different so that we could see more of him. So here's the reality of what science is saying is that, that we are all one human family and our creative God made us all different so we could see a bunch of different images of him. We are all a different image of God because he chose to give us flavor, because he's creative. And so how much do we miss out on knowing God when we put up a wall between us and somebody else? because somebody else is an opportunity to know more of God. And that's what science is telling us. And hear me on this, I'm not saying, I'm not making a case biblically and scientifically that we are all so similar to say, hey, we just need to be colorblind and pretend that we're not different at all, because that's not the answer. It's so that we can celebrate the flavor that we all bring. It's to celebrate the difference that God creatively wove into us. Always remembering that we are one human race, one family that because of an enemy who wants to kill, steal, and destroy in a stronghold has caused us to divide from each other. But we get a picture in scripture of what this will all look like in the end. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. I've heard it said that heaven will be a white supremacist hell because there will be people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation around the throne. There will be so much flavor around that throne. All of God's images, all these images of him surrounding his throne, praising him, one family with all of these beautiful ways that he made us differently. And so if that's, if that's our picture of eternity, like that's that, just don't get lost, don't let that get lost on you, that that is the tie from him saying, I'm going to bless all nations through this family and that blessing comes and it's Jesus and he dies on the cross and he walks out of a tomb and he says, okay, the blessing has come for all people and it's eternal life with me. So go tell everybody, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And then we see around the throne in the end, it will be every tribe, every tongue, every nation. This is a story of one human family that we are all a part of, and if that's our picture of eternity, and, and we are a pocket of heaven here, we are called to bring the kingdom to earth, and why would we not make life right now look like that? 
I want to be a church where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation know that. No, it's not that we're making a special accommodation to tell you that you're welcome. You already belong here because you're family. You're a part of this family because you're one of God's kids. We're brothers and sisters. God said it, science said it, you're welcome here. I want to see a beautiful picture like, like that picture. Every tribe, every tongue, so much flavor that God has put into different people with different cultures and experiences and backgrounds so that I can know him more through his kids. That's the church that I want to be. I'm not talking about diversity for the sake of diversity. I'm talking about diversity for the sake of unity of God's people. And that we as a church are known in this city and in this state and in this country as advocates for the Imago Day. That when it comes to these spiritual issues, we will say something. And that will continue. This isn't a one and done thing. We will continue to talk about it here. We will talk about it in our groups. We will talk about it in our homes. And we will do everything we can to be God's family, to be a picture of Revelation 7-9. This is a spiritual stronghold started by an enemy that will be finished in victory by Jesus. And we, the church, are the instrument for that. And I believe, because I know you, that that's what you want. I believe you want to be a part of that in this church. I believe that you want to be a part of that in this church. And so that brings us to the, the last part, which is the difficult question. Okay, so what can we do? Racism is evil. We hate it. We want equality. We want unity. What do we do? And that was the most challenging question in my conversations with my friends. Because this is such a, a complicated topic. And it's talking about changing human hearts. But I got some great ideas, some starting points. Like I said, this is the start of a conversation. I got some great ideas on how do we advocate. That's the question. How do we advocate? And I have a couple categories. They all rhyme with advocate to make it easy for you. And know that this is not going to be an exhaustive list. There is so much more. These are just some starting point ideas that me and my friends have come up with. They are educate, elevate, and communicate. So the first one, educate. We have got to learn real history. We've got to read past our high school textbooks that we didn't even read. We've got to learn from experiences. We've got to talk to people. We've got to read books. I was on the phone with my friends. Like, they're telling me, read White Fragility. Read The Miseducation of the Negro. Read uh, Martin Luther King's Letters to, uh, from a Birmingham Jail. There's a book called Letters to a Birmingham Jail written by pastors who are speaking decades after we lost Dr. King talking about this issue, the road that we still have to go. We've got to read those things. And I know that throwing out titles and telling you to go read stuff and articles and books, that's going to cause some people to, to be rubbed the wrong way. When you read some of those things, there's going to be things that you don't agree with. And you know what? I'm okay with that. We have, if we want to grow, if we want to be mature Christians, if we want to be adults, we have got to step out of our echo chambers where all we hear is the same thing that we already believe all the time. We have got to start talking to people that will challenge us. Like it's so easy to go listen to the people that are just going to confirm everything you already think and never grow and stay the same. And we have got to stop doing that. So we got to get more educated. We got to learn about this stuff. And when we do, so our theology, it's shaped by our context. So get a bigger context. Get a bigger context. Get a bigger picture of the Imago Dei. And while we can learn from reading, and there's, there's a great place for just educating through that, we, we learn best through experience. So drive to a different part of town. Go somewhere where not everybody looks like you. So there's this area in Austin, for those of you here. It's called Six Square. I walked around there yesterday. In the 20s, 
when the city planners were segregating the city, they allotted six square miles for the African-American population to go. And that area is known as Six Square, and it's a historical place now. So I know that a lot of things aren't open right now due to COVID, but you can go to um, the African-American Cultural and Heritage Facility, George Washington Carver Museum and Cultural Center. This is Austin's Black Cultural Historical District. And most of us only know that Franklin's Barbecue is right next to it, but it's right there. Go walk around, go talk to people, go read some of this history that happened here in our city. There's Houston Tillotson University, which started two years before the University of Texas, an African-American university, because schools were segregated at the time. And there's so much history there. Their baseball field was home to the Austin Black Senators baseball team, which played in what was called the Negro Leagues because sports were segregated. There were legends that played on that field. There's a place called Victory Grill. I walked in there yesterday and I talked to my new friend, Bree, and she told me some of the history of, of people that have performed in this place. Victory Grill was started at the end of World War II so that returning African-American soldiers had a place to go to eat and drink because remember, they were coming home from fighting for the freedom of the world to a place where they were not welcome most places. But this place started so they would have a place to go. And, and people like little Richard and Tina Turner, there were people that performed there. There's so much history there. And in one conversation, standing in that place, I learned about Bree growing up there, her grandma growing up there who bought a house for $5,000 in Austin. Can you imagine? Go to Six Square. We're gonna plan some hangouts when things are more open. We're gonna go learn together, but take your family. Go to a different part of town. Go educate yourself. The next part. Next way that we can advocate, elevate. If you're a majority person, a white person, we need to elevate people of color and this starts in our heart. And no matter who you are, you need to elevate people of other races or people that you judge a certain way, you need to elevate them in your heart. This is a heart thing. It starts there. Asking God, help me to see people like you do. I've been doing this. I've been driving around and everyone I see walking, even the person that cuts me off in my car, I just, the first thought I'm trying to have is Imago Day, Imago Day, Imago Day. It's like the soul check. That's right. That's my family member. That's my brother. That's my sister. Before I make any other judgment, I got to first remember that that is my sibling. How different would our hearts be if that's how we always looked at people? Go get a tattoo of Imago Day if you need to. To, to look at people the way that God does. I'm sure that right now our buddy Chris is going to plan that tattoo. Go get it, Chris. Imago Day. So it starts as a, a heart posture, but we've got to elevate people of color in hiring and in politics all over in the different spheres of our society. And I'm not getting political. I'm not telling you who to vote for or what to vote for. I'm just asking that you would read about things that maybe don't affect you, but affect people of color. Read about policies. There are voices that we're not hearing in this country because of the color of people's skins that we need to hear. We need to elevate people of color in this country. And the last, in the, the, the common thread through all my conversations was communicate. And I wanna start by saying the, the primary and best form of communication that we all need to carry is listening. Listen to somebody else. Don't listen with a yeah, but. Don't listen to insert your opinion. Don't listen to say, well, just listen. You may disagree with the person and that's okay. But maybe for once, call somebody, talk to a friend and just say, I just wanna listen and hear your experiences and affirm you as a human being. That's empathy. I just wanna listen to you and I don't need to say anything. And I have to be 
firm about that because we talk all the time and throw our opinions out all the time. And for the record, this includes Instagram and Facebook. I need to tell myself all the time, just shut up. Just listen to some other people without having to have a response. Stop drawing barriers by the things that you say to other people. Just start listening more. James, James 1.19, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. We're not seeing righteousness with this because everybody's getting so angry because everyone will not stop talking and needs to start listening. You have two ears and one mouth. God gave you two devices to listen and one to speak with. That's just math. Let's listen. Let's listen with empathy. And maybe right now you're like, hey, I wanna enter this conversation. And if you're honest, you don't maybe have a close friend that's of a different ethnicity than you. And there's no condemnation for that. It's just time to go make some. It's time to go meet some people that don't look like you. In your workplace, in your neighborhood, in this city, in the church, go make some friends. Not for the sake of just saying, hey, now look, I have a friend that is a different ethnicity than me, but so that you can see a picture of God, so that you can get to know somebody who has different experiences and learn and grow. And maybe that conversation might feel a little awkward starting or clunky, that's okay. Jesus had a pretty awkward conversation with the woman at the well, but look at the ripple effects of what happened in that conversation. My friend Chad, he, he describes it this way. We as Christians should just always walk around with an extra leaf for our table to just always be ready to expand our table so somebody else can come join us. Let's make a Revelation 7-9 picture in our homes and in our churches and in our businesses and the relationships that we have. And the other huge important part to me of communication is our communication with our kids and the young generation. Because what I've realized is that as, the major, as a majority person, as a white person, we're not necessarily forced to talk about race because we don't have to think twice about going places because we're the majority but people of color, they have to have those conversations. My friends were telling me, man, I had, to, I had to be told, these are the things you do when you drive. You gotta watch out for this. You gotta be careful of this. But we all need to be having this conversation with our kids. We have to. And I've been thinking about the conversation that, that I wanna have with my son. He's one right now. So our conversations are very one-sided, but I can't wait in the next couple of years. I know that he's gonna, we're gonna be at the park, He's gonna make some new friends and, and he's gonna notice, hey, my new friend has different skin color than me. Kids aren't born racist, but they are born noticing differences. And it's what we say in those moments, how we communicate in that moment that is going to be so crucial to shape the next generation. And I'm working on my script and it will get better as I talk to more friends and get better ideas. But I just wanna, I wanna look at him and say, Ezekiel, you made a friend today who's a, a picture of God. And let's celebrate the fact that he has different skin color than you because that's the flavor that God gave him. He made him that way. And he made you this way. That's the, that's the Easter egg. That's the fourth thing that rhymes with advocate. We celebrate human beings. We celebrate our differences. We're gonna celebrate this, Zeke. And there's something that you also need to know. Your friend will face in his life the reality that there will be people that don't like him simply because of the color of his skin. And I know that sounds crazy to you in your innocence and that's because it's wrong, but people are broken and they put up barriers and they miss out on a whole lot of God because they do that, but we don't. We won't miss out on that because we're children of God, because we're advocates for the Imago Dei. We are ambassadors for reconciliation. We don't miss out on the beauty of God through other people who are different than us. And so now you have this friend and it's awesome. You're gonna get to know each other and grow together 
And there may come a time when somebody says something to your friend because of the color of his skin, looks down on him, makes him feel unwelcome. And what you do, son, in that moment is you stand up and you speak back to them. You stand up for your friend, shoulder to shoulder. You have his back because that's who you are, an advocate for the Imago day. So you stand up and you speak for your friend, just like he would do for you. That's the kind of conversations I wanna have with my son that I wanna challenge you to have with your kids. And maybe you're like, hey, my kids are older. I'm actually a little worried right now that they may carry around a little prejudice that comes from me. It's just time for a new conversation. Time to humble ourselves as parents and just talk to our kids. Show them this sermon. Tell them about the Imago Dei. Read them these scriptures. Whatever it takes, we gotta talk to our kids because I believe if we do, if we communicate this right, that when my son has that conversation with his son, it will be different. The heart will be the same, but racism will be closer to extinction in that generation. And then when my grandson has that conversation with his kid, we will be closer. Maybe it's gone, it's extinct because the church stepped up and started talking about this issue because we jumped in and said, no, 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 reconciliation is ours. We are advocates for the Imago Dei. So we are gonna stand for our brothers and sisters. That's who we are and that's who our kids are going to be. And so our last part of communication comes to us with God. He's the one who changes the hearts. He's the one who can unify. He's the one who's going to work through us. So we talk to him in prayer and in worship and we're gonna sing right now the song of the year. Hopefully you're not sick of it yet, but the blessing. We're gonna sing the blessing. It's this beautiful song that we, we pray blessing over ourselves and the future generations. And I wanna specifically as a church, this song applies to everybody and God's heart applies to everybody. But today I want us as a church to sing specifically on behalf of our African-American brothers and sisters in this country, to sing blessing over them and the future generations that are to come. And I'm gonna be singing, I'm gonna be thinking about my friends, George and Christy and their boys, Noah and Levi, and my friends, Derek and Rod and Seth, my friend, Alexandria and her beautiful children, Pamela Grace, a Daisy, my neighbors, this family we just met at the park, Sean and Jazlyn and their beautiful kids, Bree that I met yesterday at Victory Grill, people I grew up with, my high school advisor, Rashawn Davis, who was so formative in my life as a leader. Neighbors, people around me, I'm gonna be praying. I'm gonna be praying blessing over families all over this country. And I want you to do that with me. Uh, yesterday, this is the last thing I'll say. In that six square area, I went to the Texas State Cemetery. And I walked through there and I found the gravesite of Barbara Jordan. And you may have flown out of the terminal named after her, driven on the road named after her, but you may not know that she was a BA when it came to civil rights. She was the first African-American woman from a Southern state to serve in Congress in Washington. She did so many things you can go read about in her life that she won a presidential medal of freedom in 1994. So I stood at her gravesite and I read about her life to honor her. And then I, I turned this song on, on my phone and I put it on the ground and I got on my knees and I put my hand on her grave. And there was this family that showed up and the kids were looking at me like, what is that guy trying to do? But with tears in my eyes, I had this beautiful moment that felt like unity, honoring a legend of the fight for reconciliation, of the fight for unity, of the fight for equality. Thanking God for lives like hers and honoring what she's done and saying, let that propel us forward. Let that propel us towards unity to be inspired by those who have suffered and sacrificed so much so that people could see the truth of the Imago Dei and we're gonna do the same thing. And I prayed this prayer, I just prayed, God, 
I pray for unity today. I pray for equality today. I pray that people would leave behind guilt and be motivated to action. Would you change our hearts? Would you give us the ability to see people as you see them, to see the Imago day? God, we refuse as the church to say, that's just the way it is. Since when has impossible stopped you? Would you unify your people? And would you use our church to affect change for equality and unity? And we pray a blessing over our African-American brothers and sisters and generations to come in Jesus' name, amen.